Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 191, The Sack of Annie. In our last episode, we moved from the death of Monomachos to the elevation of Isaac Komnenos. In between, we waved goodbye to the Macedonian dynasty and the short reign of Michael VI. The reigns of Theodora, her eunuchs, and the aging Michael had brought the empire to a point where the last drops of Basil II's legitimacy had finally run dry. Basil spent his life trying to tame the army, to stop it from imposing its will on the palace, and he'd been very successful. But by the time Monomachos was on the throne, the military were getting twitchy. Two army rebellions failed to unseat him, but now, in 1057, they succeeded in getting one of their own on the throne. And just in time, too. It's been nine years since the outbreak of the Pecheneg Wars, and the financial crisis it provoked has yet to be seriously tackled. Isaac Komnenos was born around 1007. His father, Manuel, was one of Basil II's most loyal generals. Manuel died in 1020 and entrusted the care of his two sons to the emperor himself. Basil lodged Isaac and younger brother John at the Studios Monastery. This kept them close to the court and ensured they would receive a first-class education. Basil also arranged for Isaac to marry one of the Bulgarian princesses that he'd scooped up during his victory lap of the Balkans. Isaac joined the imperial bodyguard and was then promoted to become a general, eventually rising to the position of senior eastern commander during the reign of Monomachos. It was this seniority that led his co-conspirators to choose the 50-year-old Isaac as the new emperor when they rose in revolt in 1057. And for those of you wondering, the more famous Komnenos, Alexius, is Isaac's nephew. At this moment, a precocious toddler. Isaac sailed into the city the same day that Michael VI took his monastic vows and, according to Psellos, began work immediately on restoring the empire to good health. 
Psalos had been crying out for a figure like Isaac to come along, and the new emperor did not disappoint. He had seen the debased coinage being distributed to his men, and he knew the toxic effect it could have on morale. Upon assuming power, his priority was to restore the empire's finances as swiftly as possible. So, he appointed new tax collectors and gave them strict instructions to gather every penny the state was owed, including arrears from previous years. He cancelled all the promotions and honours which Michael VI had handed out, and he cut the salaries of a host of office holders. Then he turned on the church. Reviving the spirit of Nicephorus' focus, he took back imperial lands that had been gifted to monasteries and revoked over-generous charters or tax exemptions that various religious institutions had managed to acquire. None of Isaac's predecessors could contemplate budget cuts on this scale because they all lacked the legitimacy to pull it off. Each of our past eight rulers had needed to buy popularity in the capital and used state finances to do it. Isaac, backed by the eastern armies, did not feel the need to tread lightly. His coins that you can see on the website or on social media show him with sword drawn. The implication was clear. Isaac's legitimacy came from the army. He didn't need to pander to monks and bureaucrats to ensure that he slept soundly at night. Nevertheless, Isaac quickly became unpopular, resented by the common people, the clergy, and even some in the army. We understand the quagmire that the empire was slowly sinking into, but contemporaries were largely unaware. Writing with hindsight, Psellos tells us that Isaac lacked one vital quality that Basil II possessed. Patience. Specifically, the ability to make reforms gradually without provoking resistance. One of those that Isaac angered was the patriarch, Michael Kirularios. The archbishop felt that he'd played a key role in getting Isaac crowned and now he warned the emperor not to keep attacking the church's privileges. According to Pselos, the patriarch got ideas above his station, threatening to withdraw his support from the new regime and even wearing purple garments to indicate his own elevated status. It's difficult to know how true these accusations are, because Pselos was a personal enemy, of Kirularios. Remember that the patriarch had forced our historian to declare his orthodoxy before a church synod. The emperor must have felt threatened, though, because in November 1058 he had Kirularios arrested when he was outside of the capital. It seems to have been a purely political decision because the charges made against the patriarch, to justify the arrest, were trumped up. A synod would have to be arranged to depose him, and Pselos was licking his lips at the thought of turning the tables fully on his old foe. But Kirularios died of natural causes two months later, conveniently ending the issue. Pselos went ahead and wrote the case for the prosecution anyway, and it's this portrayal of the power-mad Kirularios 
that has led to the Great Schism being remembered as partly the patriarch's fault, as we talked about in episode 188. The deposition of the patriarch caused a good deal of unease in the capital. The political establishment had been used to calm and pleasant waters for a long time now. Isaac was ruffling some serious feathers. The following summer, 1059, the Vasilev set out on a military campaign to start teaching the barbarians of this world what it meant to face the Romans in full force. It seems that the Pechenegs, now living south of the Danube, had been raiding across the river into the kingdom of Hungary. The Byzantines were powerless to stop them, and so the Hungarians crossed the Danube themselves and began capturing Roman forts. Isaac led a full field army to Sadika, where he was able to bring both sides to the negotiating table. The Hungarians seemed to have returned home peacefully, and most of the Pechenegg chiefs renewed their terms with the empire. One group refused and were quickly brought to heel. It would have been a thoroughly successful trip if it wasn't for the return journey. By now it was September, and violent rainstorms swept in unexpectedly. Field armies generally travelled along riverbanks for obvious reasons. Now the swollen river overflowed, sweeping away horses, men and supplies as Isaac tried to make his way home. The loss of life was seen, understandably, as a bad omen. The emperor made it back to Constantinople safely, but was struck by a serious fever two months later. As he lay anticipating his death, he nominated his successor, one of his fellow generals, Constantine Ducas. This was an interesting choice. Komnenos's own son had died by this point, but he did have a brother and other family members available. Yet he seems to have felt that it would be better to pass the mantle onto a fellow experienced general who would continue to carry out his reform program. If that was his thought process, then it was a selfless decision, and quite possibly the wrong one. Ducas duly took charge of the empire, and we'll talk more about him soon, but Isaac, much to everyone's surprise, recovered from his illness. He retired to the studious monastery where he'd grown up, took monastic vows, and lived on for another six months. He had been essentially the emperor the Romans needed for just two years and three months. But we're okay, right? Because Ducas is a fellow general and will continue Komnenos' policies. Right? Wrong. Ducas will reverse much of Isaac's economizing, allegedly downgrading the military budget to help cover the deficits. He will then sit idly by as Turkish raids intensify to the point where Ani, the spiritual and economic centre of Armenia, will be bloodily captured. How could this possibly be? As is often the case during the darkest moments in Roman history, our sources begin to fail us. We have little in the way of reliable Eastern histories, while the Chronicle of John Skylitzes, which I've mentioned in passing, cuts out as Isaac comes to power. 
Michael Psellos wrote most of the chronographia at this moment, partly, we think, to try and convince Ducas of the importance of properly funding the army. Psellos was now a, a real insider, a high court advisor and soon-to-be tutor to Ducas's son. He couldn't criticise the sitting regime too directly, so we have to make do with elusive or sarcastic comments indicating his displeasure with the direction of policy. Finally, we have the history of Michael Ataliates, which is a valuable and even-handed work. But Ataliates was merely an urban judge at this point. He doesn't gain access to the corridors of power and the corresponding insight until after Ducas's reign. So, we are left with a lot of unsatisfactory answers to some vital questions. This is the moment when Turkish raids start to become a serious problem, a challenge to Roman authority and a threat to the stability of the borders, making it all the more confusing and frustrating that at this same moment we lose a clear narrative of the Roman response. We're going to focus for the rest of the episode on the eastern border and get a sense of the damage being done. Backtracking to 1057, remember that Isaac's rebellion pitted most of the eastern military establishment against troops from the west. This meant that the best soldiers along the Armenian border abandoned their posts and marched for the capital. In their absence, the mountains began to stir. Independent Georgian lords began seizing Roman fortresses, and a large Turkic warband tipped off by the Georgians, swept past Theodosiopolis, sacking unfortified towns as they went. Finding their path unobstructed, they made their way south to Melitene. You may recall during our end-of-the-century tour that Melitene, that rich and strategically important city, had been left without a complete set of circuit walls. Once the Romans had taken it, they didn't want any Arab emirs reoccupying the site, this left the garrison of Melitene little choice but to negotiate with the horde of step-riders parked outside. The soldiers and the population were allowed to leave peacefully, enabling the Turks to spend a week ransacking the place before departing. This was a major blow to the empire and a clear indication of the change in the strategic situation. Yet what happened next may have fooled some into believing that things were not as bad as they seemed. Roman troops occupied the mountain passes which the nomads were about to traverse, and the riders had to head back into imperial territory. The Turks ended up spending the winter near Melitene, and when they tried to capture a Roman fort on their way home, they were ambushed and fled through the passes in disarray, abandoning most of their loot. As they made their way through Tehran, they were attacked by the local garrisons there, disintegrating into a trickle of survivors. These successful defensive tactics were straight out of the Nicephorus Focus handbook, literally and figuratively. Engineers were sent in to repair Melatine's walls, and despite the shock of its sack, maybe everything was a-okay after all. It wasn't, though. 
In 1059, we have garbled accounts of a major raid which pushed into Anatolia itself, possibly doing damage around Sebasteia. In 1062, we hear of an attack on Martyropolis, just south of the mountains in Mesopotamia. Again, Roman troops chased the raiders away and recovered some of their stolen property. Two years on, and the real danger arrives. The Sultan, Tugrul Beg, died in 1063, and his nephew, Alp Arslan, took charge of the Seljuk realm. We'll talk more about him in the future. The new Sultan had to impose control over the tribes living in Azerbaijan, and the surest way to do so was to lead them on a successful plundering expedition. So in the summer of 1064, he led a huge army along the Araxes River, capturing Roman forts and installing his own garrisons. He bypassed Ani and marched into Georgia, receiving submission from the independent lords there. He then turned back and surrounded the cultural and economic hub of Armenia. Ani had only been in Roman hands for 20 years, but it had become a central point of control in the mountains. The city was fairly easily defended, as it was only really approachable from one direction, with steep ravines protecting it on its other sides. But here's the rub. One of the downgrades to the military budget which our new emperor had made was here at Ani. The governorship of a city like Ani was a coveted prize, so a local Armenian notable named Bagrat had offered to do the job for free. You don't need to put me on the payroll, I will maintain the defences, I will feed the garrison, all out of my own pocket. The cash-strapped Constantine X accepted the offer. As you might then expect, Bagrat skimped on defensive spending to increase his profit margin. This led to a conflict between the Roman garrison and the local militia, and on August the 16th, as the siege began to sap confidence, a section of the walls was left unguarded. Some enterprising Seljuk troops assaulted it, the gates were opened, and the city fell. A graphic sack followed, one that made a lasting impression in the minds of many Armenians. This was a huge moment. It was arguably the worst Roman defeat since the sack of Amorium way back in 838. Alp Arslan returned home very satisfied. The tribes had been shown who the new boss was, and a major Armenian city was now under his control. Not directly, though. We should keep in mind that the Sultan was not trying to start an all-out war with Byzantium. He simply wanted control of the nomads and peace in the mountains. Inevitably, this meant conflict with the Romans, but he did not leave behind a Seljuk garrison. Instead, he turned the city over to his Arab allies, specifically to Abu al-Aswar, the former Byzantine client who had once been the emir of Devin. The emir could be relied upon to defend his new patch and direct the raids of his followers west instead of east. As Antony Caldellis puts it, Armenia was being flipped. Its cities were being turned back into the clients of Baghdad, as they had been back in 838. 
the Sultan and his followers were undoing the last two centuries of Byzantine diplomacy. The sound of silence that you can hear is the noise coming from Constantinople, the lack of noise. To our surprise, we hear of no reaction to these events. In every other attack of this scale, we hear that a field army was being assembled to march out to the trouble spot. If not to confront the Sultan, then at least to make an appearance, to convince locals that they shouldn't contemplate switching sides, and to remind smaller fry, like Abu al-Aswa, that any attempt to make further gains would be resisted. But the sources do not mention anything. Some suggest that the new emperor did not care about the death of Armenians because they were not Chalcedonian Christians, but this cannot be the case. The loss of Annie was both a strategic blow and a public humiliation. To reinforce his commitment to defending the region, Ducas actually made a new Armenian acquisition in the months that followed. Not far from Annie is the city of Kars, and seeing which way the hurricane was blowing, its ruler, Gagik Abbas, offered his small kingdom to the emperor in exchange for lands in Cappadocia. In retrospect, it was a very sad deal all round. The Romans sent troops to defend territory that they would soon have to abandon, while Gagik moved to an area that would shortly be swarming with Turkic settlers. The writing was on the wall for the Romans. Clearly this new sultanate wasn't going away. It looked set to reverse all the gains they'd made across the last couple of centuries. Something had to be done to arrest this slide, and yet between 1059 and 1067, eight years, nothing, as far as we can tell, was done to bolster the eastern frontier. We need to meet our new emperor and reconstruct his thought process during this crucial period, but that will have to wait for next episode. We need to give Ducas the proper space to assess his reign. That's it for today's episode. As you can tell, I am now back from the second History of Byzantium tour to Istanbul, which was fantastic. More tours coming in spring and autumn 2020, and if you want to get details as soon as they're available, then drop me an email at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com. Oh, and Evan, I should have said, you don't have to listen to this if you don't want to. <laughs>